remain standing for the reading of God's word today. It comes out of Luke 13, verses 14 through 17. It says, But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, There are six days when work should be done. Therefore come on those days and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or a donkey from the feeding trough on, a, on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were humiliated. But the crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things he was doing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your compassion, for your mercy, for your truth. Would you be our teacher today? By the Holy Spirit, would you teach us all things? Would you just give Pastor Patrick Murphy just a, a, a supercharged anointing of the Holy Spirit to bring your word to us? God, would you make our hearts open to hear it? And when we walk out that door, may we choose to follow your message today and put it into practice and become more like your son in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Morning, church. That was awesome. All right. Hey, uh, like Pastor Jeff said, I'm Pastor Patrick, pastor of discipleship and outreach, and I don't really get to speak to you all that much anymore. I used to be the pastor of announcements, but now I'm just the pastor of recorded announcements. And um, it has some advantages, not as many as before. But I'm really glad to be before you uh, and share with you just what the Lord has laid on my heart. Um, it's, been an, it's been a good season. Not in its entirety, but there's goodness. There's the, the silver linings coming through where we're recognizing that the people of God long to be together. We've seen that in groups and classes. The numbers aren't the same of what they once were, but man, the quality of the conversation has been an encouragement to me. Our community group met last Friday, and we talked about law and gospel, and man, it was, it was like uh, eating a, a five-course meal. It was delicious. That's because we long to be together. And I know that's for many of you, the opportunity to be in a class, be in a group. Um, you're, you're relishing the opportunity uh, to do so. Whenever groups and classes get started, when we do leadership training, um, there's always the awkwardness of a group meeting for the first time and getting to know people, icebreakers. And I just tell leaders, go ahead and lean on into it. It's awkward for everybody. Why don't we just uh, acknowledge the awkwardness and do something fun with it? And I give every leader a 100 get-to-know-you questions, kind of as a way just to, to break open the door in relationships. And some questions are super goofy. Some are really revealing and wonderful. And the way our group does it, someone will pick a number, I'll read down the list, and then I'll, they have to answer that question. So they don't know what's coming. It could be uh, pretty personal or not, and they could choose. But all the eyes are saying, you better answer that uh, if it's pretty good. One question in particular that I love the most and it reveals a little bit of who they are and what they want to become, like what, what, who they want to surround themselves. It's the question of, if you could choose anybody in history, aside from Jesus, to have lunch or coffee with, who would it be? I have to, for Christians, put the little tagline of, apart from Jesus, because the pastor's in the group. They got to choose Jesus, and the Sunday school answer is what they're looking for. Uh, but... Nonetheless, when I ask that question, people think through it and they come up with answers. And for me, it's an awesome experience to know who's important in their life. One in particular that I thought was awesome, uh, if, you, if you know her, she said Sacagawea. I want to meet Sacagawea and sit, in with her, sit and drink coffee with her. Why? Because she's outdoors and adventurous. Another person talked about Ronald Reagan. Another person said any and other things. But you know who I would choose to answer that question? Two people. I usually go back and forth between. The first one's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a believer that lived during World War II um, that was put to death, was hung, right before his, his concentration camp was liberated by the Soviets, about two weeks before. He was put in chains and shackled because he was associated with a plot to assassinate Hitler because his brother was involved in it. But nonetheless, he was in England before the war preaching and teaching uh, in seminaries and in classes and saw the dark cloud of Nazi Germany coming over the Lutheran church. And instead of running away, he went into it. And he started what was called the underground church, an underground seminary. I, I love that. He, he's calling people. God called him and he answered this call and he went. The other person, and, and you've heard me talk about him in sermons before, is the missionary John G. Patton to Vanuatu seeing the compassion that he had for people that weren't like him, that ended up killing many people that he loved and knew, but still had a compassionate heart to share the gospel with him. But what about you? Who would you pick? Who would you choose? I think it's a fun thing. It's revealing not entirely of who you are, but I think it's a good intro into who someone is, what they value, what they're interested like in the conversation. But if I were to ask the world this question, removing that, um, that little tagline that says, apart from Jesus, and left him in there? If I were to ask anybody in the world, in our community, who would you have uh, lunch or coffee with, how many of them would actually choose Jesus? I mean, you think of historical figures. I can think of no more important historical figure that has drastically changed the course of history than Jesus. That's agreed upon whether you believe in him or not. He's an important figure. One of a select few that have changed the course of history. How many people would choose him? That's a fascinating question. Should they choose Jesus? Why should they choose Jesus? But Jesus has chosen us. That's why we're sitting in this room. Jesus called us forward. He called us into a spotlight that we might not be comfortable with or uncertain as to why he even would, but nonetheless, he's called us forward. Pastor Jeff started a series two weeks ago, uh, or three weeks ago, excuse me, called Forward where we're looking at our mission and our vision, our God-given mission and vision. He kicked things off, reminding us that as Christians and believers, we are to be looking forward, trusting in the sovereignty of God, and looking to Christ as the author and finisher of our salvation. That our head should be captivated by God's sovereignty and Christ's certainty. And then he talked to us last week that not only we need to be looking forward, as, as a church, we need to be pressing forward, focusing on our desire as Christians, to long for and to be more like Christ, to press into the gospel, to live as if we were runners, committing every fiber of our being to win the race the Lord has set us on. But this morning, we need to recognize if the first was head, the next was heart, today is our hands. Where the rubber meets the road, what are we going to do about this commitment to the gospel that we now believe in and hold tight to? That Christ is calling his people forward to tell their stories of grace and forgiveness, to win our community and the world for Jesus. That Jesus Christ is calling you and me forward to tell our stories of grace and forgiveness to win our world for Jesus. And so this is an evangelistic, it is an outreach message, but I'm not getting very practical today. My hope is to address your heart and your desire behind outreach as if to be a filter and a strain to weigh through your desires so that at the end of it, there is a commitment and a desire to answer the call when he says, go. And this call, as you all know and recognize and have felt before, it's not free. There is a cost associated with this call. It's often uncomfortable and it does require great faith. 
Yet the people who answer Christ's call to testify to his goodness receive a blessing of grace that is not achievable. We can't find it anywhere else than retelling our story of God's grace and truth to us. There is a blessing here that cannot be achievable, nor can it be found in other capacities. Sometimes that call is going to come unexpectedly. Sometimes the call to testify to the goodness of God is something you could not have planned or presented. It just happens you're in the right place at the right time. Are you going to answer the call? Other times, the Lord lays on your heart a person, an interaction, or a place in which you feel the tug to go. Are you going to answer the call? Are you going to present the gospel of grace? But do you know where each and every one of these calls comes from? What predicates the call of Jesus saying, come forward, come into the spotlight, like all of you are looking at me, what is predicating the call of Christ to you? It's his unconditional love for you. Know that this call is not something that he demands so that you can receive or become good in his eyes or acceptable to receive his grace. The exact opposite. You already have that. This is a furthering of that call. It's a deepening of that faith and blessing to come forward, to answer the call, to declare to our world God's goodness and the grace and forgiveness of his son. Will you pray with me real fast before we jump into Luke? Our Lord and our God, we ask for a blessing to be upon each and every one of us. As a family together, we ask for your spirit to be the teacher, opening our eyes and our ears to the very words that you would have for us to commit us to answering the call to proclaim your gospel in this world. So we lay down before you our idols, our roadblocks, the very things that would prevent us from answering the call. Will you speak to us and rebuild us through your word? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to open up with me to Luke. Luke chapter 13. And in this call of Christ to bring his children forward, Christ's love calls us forward for our presence to testify about him. Christ's love calls us forward for our presence to testify him. Jesus, being a renowned rabbi, walking up and throughout um, the Judean wilderness, will eventually come to a synagogue. And because he has a following and a crowd, he's seen as a worthwhile person to invite to speak. And so he's often invited to speak at every synagogue he goes to. And this is, in Luke chapter 13, it's no different. However, in this moment, as he is teaching, as he's proclaiming to the people, an individual catches his attention, his eye. And specifically, it was a woman who has been in bondage for so long. And out of his compassion, he sees her and calls her forward. And in Luke chapter 13, verse 12, it says, Jesus saw her and he called out to her, Woman, you are free of your disability. Then he laid hands on her and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. What propelled Jesus to call this woman forward? His compassionate love and his desire for creation to glorify God. He called her forward out of his compassionate love to free her from her bondage so that she can freely worship God. Those two things are accomplished in the same instance. The woman suffering for 18 years is is kind of hard to grasp and wrestle with. We see later down in the chapter what Pastor Jeff read, that she was bound, that Satan bound her to some degree. We, We don't have any other explanation than that. But Jesus' compassion calls her forward. 18 years of this bondage. Now, knowing the life expectancy of that age, that was almost all, if not all, of her life. She was nameless, she is unknown, and she sat in amongst these people uh, kind of as a passerby. She's no longer recognized. 
And Jesus sees her, has compassion on her, and without her permission or request, calls out to her saying, you are free. Those who would have heard Jesus would understand that he's talking physically and spiritually, freeing her, releasing her from the bondage that she couldn't do herself. Jesus knows her plight, knows her pain, and eradicates it. And what does she do as a result? What's the result of this amazing miracle? She, she praises God. I, I, this happens throughout Scripture. Look at John chapter 11, verse 4. When Jesus heard of Lazarus' death or ailment, look at what he says to his disciples. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, although we know he dies. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The miraculous transformation that this woman went through has an end. It's the glory of God. The miracles are not ends in and of themselves. They're a means to an end. To bring people in right fellowship with God. And so Jesus' call to her forward in this moment, if this is all the story had, we get to rejoice. Man, that's awesome. Jesus is a good guy. But oftentimes, Jesus' miracles and actions, Jesus' transformation in our life brings us into conflict. And that's no different here. Read again with me what Pastor Jeff read in Luke chapter 13, verses 14 through 17. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, there are six days when work should be done. Therefore, on those days, you can be healed, but not the Sabbath. It's really nice, very convenient. Verse 15, but the Lord answered him and said, hypocrites, doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years, shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said these things, all his adversaries were humiliated. I love being on Jesus' side. But the whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things he was doing. This leader, this synagogue leader, was appalled by Jesus' actions and rebukes him, rebukes his miracle, and by association is rebuking her. The one who received the miracle. She didn't request it. She didn't call out for it, but she is nonetheless in the crosshairs. With a vein bulging in his forehead, the man cries foul at the woman's healing. But but on what grounds? What grounds does he call it that Jesus wasn't following their rules? That he was breaking the norm? That his love and compassion was different than theirs? So Jesus swiftly defeats his accusers, exposing one thing, their lack of empathy and compassion. See, the reason why Luke includes this miracle, I I think, because it's not in any of the other Gospels, is because Luke is choosing for this miracle to act as a mirror for the religious leaders of his day. See, if you look in chapter 4 and chapter 5, Jesus heals the man demon-possessed. He heals a leper and a paralytic man. And what should this be doing? Like a sculptor chiseling away at the marble, these miracles should be chiseling away at the hard-heartedness of these religious leaders that they can come and see that Jesus is not a fluke, that he has authority, that his message is right. And so this miracle is a mirror reflecting the real disposition they have towards her and towards Jesus and his mission. They don't care. There is no compassion in their heart. There is no love for her. See, Jesus' mission is to redeem and to reconcile a broken world with a righteous God. And when that takes place, it brings glory to God and praise for his name for what he's done. But it brings her into conflict. But nonetheless, Jesus brings her in it knowing it'll bring conflict. 
Jesus calls for our presence, just like her presence, to testify that Jesus is not an observer, but a transformer of lives and an initiator of salvation. Jesus calls our presence to testify that he's not an observer, but a transformer of lives and an initiator of salvation. Jesus does not sit on the back and wait. Jesus is active. He's not an observer. He's a transformer. And, and she's the image of this. Remember, she didn't ask or request this. She didn't get to choose. It just happened. And Jesus calls her by the mere fact that she was there into the spotlight to testify to God's power, to his goodness, but more importantly, to his compassionate, unconditional love. Brothers and sisters, you and I are called to do the same thing. Out of Christ's love, he's calling us into the spotlight of the world and in our community and our neighborhoods to testify to his power and compassionate love to transform us out of our bondage to sin and into right relationship with God. How do we do that? Is that easy? Let me ask you a question. In whose life are you present with? Do your neighbors know you? By dumb luck, Kelsey and I stumbled into an awesome way where we can be present with our neighbors. We have five boys. Our backyard's kind of small. They love riding bikes, and so they're out front riding bikes nonstop. I have some young kids that shouldn't be riding bikes on the street, but love and want to keep up with their big brothers, okay? I have a two-year-old that really can't speak much. He just grunts and says, mine. He knows that real well. He's phenomenal at it. He has different ways to say it, but he's good at it. And he wants nothing more to ride his bike like his big brothers. So what do Kelsey and I need to do? sit in a lawn chair on our front porch or on our grass or on our driveway. And so from spring until probably this week, we have sat at our, in our front, and what does that do? Our people around us see who we are. They see our, our good sides, and they see when we get a little angry and testy with some of our kids. We're human! Nonetheless, I get to know them. I'm out front, I'm in my people's world, in my neighbor's world, and they're in mine. My presence is testifying to the transforming power of Jesus as I teach, coach, and train my kids, and as he teach, coaches, and trains me. A book I read that I was reminded of uh, described it this way, live with your blinds open. How many of you in your house, as you think about it, are your blinds open or closed so that people can peer into your world? We're a lot more comfortable with them closed, but the idea of our presence testifying is to live as if they're open all of the time. People see in and they see clearly. And because Jesus is transforming you, because his power is coming towards you, they will see the transformation. So where can people hear your story? Are you in community groups? Are you in classes where your mere presence is testifying to the loving transformation of Jesus? See, if I were to end the sermon there, I think it'd be good. Like, cool, cool. I don't have to say anything. I just have to do something. I can do that. But this is where it begins. This is not where it ends when he calls us forward. Our presence is only the beginning. He also wants our words, our actions, and our devotion. And so later on, as Jesus is walking through, we need to recognize that Jesus, Christ's love calls us out of anonymity to reveal our faith. Christ's love calls us out of anonymity to reveal our faith. One of the miracles Jesus performed on his way to he, he was on his way to heal the daughter of Jairus, a well-known, well-respected man. 
This man pleaded, got down on his hands and knees at Jesus' feet, asking for him to come and to save his daughter. And he agreed. And so him and the crowd, pressing against one another, shoulder to shoulder, were on the way to his house to heal his daughter. But he was interrupted on the way. He was interrupted by a woman who was suffering a flow of blood that would not cease. Her suffering wasn't merely physical. It was spiritual, emotional, and relational. She'd become an outcast in her society, living on the fringes. It was wrong probably to even look at or talk to her because she was unclean, let alone the pain she felt in her gut day after day. And out of desperation, she knew that this holy man that that she'd heard stories about was walking through her town within reach of her hand. And she decided to lay conventional wisdom and, and the commands associated with her uncleanliness aside because her uncleanliness was transmissible. She could make any and everyone around her unclean. And so despite every arrow telling her to stay home and pointing her to stay quiet and to stay shut and away from society, she goes and pursues Christ, pressing through the crowd, trying to remain anonymous, for the crowd knows her. There were people that could identify her. So with a cloak on and a hood over her head, she presses through Hoping, hoping she could get within arm's length of this holy man. Thinking to herself that that if I just reach out and I touch the tassels on his robe, that maybe then I will experience a healing and a relief that I have not known. And so she presses through the crowd, anonymous. And within minutes, she comes in close to Jesus and she stretches out her hand, and with a, with a wisp of a grasp, she couldn't grab, but nonetheless, she touches him anyways. And for the first time in her life, she feels in her body a transformation and of healing, and she, she exhales with this relief. And as the crowd continues to walk, she remains still, enjoying the newfound feeling that she's had that she can't remember having had before. But her elation is turned to agony when the man stops, turning around, says, Who touched me? Who touched my clothes? What was once joy has now turned to fear. In her mind, the thoughts are racing. I've stolen this man's power and I've given him my uncleanliness. I've touched a holy man. I know what's destined of me. I'm sure to be stoned by the very people that surround me. He will need to vindicate his name. He will need to bring justice to what I have done. I am sure to die. She's thinking to herself, I I have felt his power that healed me. I'm sure that same power can destroy me. And after calling out who touched me, Jesus pans over the crowd his gaze calming all of the conversations and commotions to a hush, his eyes piercing every soul as he looks into them. But why does he need to call out? Surely he knows who touched him. Surely a wink to her in private would suffice. Why does he have to call out? Hasn't she suffered enough public humiliation and shame for a lifetime? Why does he need to call her out? Without knowing why, his eyes catch hers. 
And out of self-preservation, she knows not what to do but to cast herself down at his feet, pleading and begging for her life. And she confesses her story. First, she confesses her plight, all that she's suffered at the hands of doctors and physicians that have only compounded her pain and suffering, resulting in more and more of an outcast. She's also confessed her plan. Out of desperation, I've come to you. You're all I have left. What is she doing? She's confessing her faith in Jesus. Every aspect of her story is grounded upon faith in Jesus being able to do for her what no one else could or would. Where doctors failed, where her finances failed, where people around her abandoned her, it was Jesus. He was all she had left, and she was right to place her faith in him. And so he called her forward to announce to all that Jesus saves. See, he wants more for her than just for her to be healed. He wants her to restore her to the fullness of life that she hasn't had nor will have without him. He wants her to know not only the one who heals her, also sees her, knows her, loves her, cares for her, and is going to provide for her. So he says to her in Mark 5, verse 34, Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. And this is the only time Jesus gives a woman the endearing title of daughter in Scripture. Do you see the closeness Jesus is describing to her? She lived as an outcast, but Jesus is undoing that in front of everybody. But more important than the simple uh, daughter, he gives her this wonderful blessing, go in peace and be healed from your affliction. This isn't a simple pleasantry that we might say, hey, go in peace. He is blessing her with shalom. He is blessing her with the peace of wholeness, with well-being, of prosperity, of security, of friendship, and salvation. He wants her not just to be healed, he wants her to be whole. And so he calls her forward out of her anonymity to testify that Jesus saves. The school I went to for undergrad, Biola, it was in downtown LA at 6th and Hope, the, the tall, big, white building right in the middle. It was across the street from that. If you go back to the early 1900s, and they moved in the 1950s. At the time, it was the tallest building in L.A. at only seven stories. Who would have thought that that was the tallest building? But at the top of the building, on each corner, had one phrase, two words that proclaimed to the city. It was, Jesus saves in red letters. One of those signs is still up. It is still in downtown Los Angeles. He calls her forward to admit to all that Jesus saves. Brothers and sisters, he calls us forward for the exact same thing. But being called forward does have a cost. It costs us anonymity. It costs us being able to walk through life unknown. See, Jesus called her forward to identify her healer and for to acknowledge the debt she owes to him. So we are now, as she was then, being called forward to identify our soul's healer and to acknowledge the debt we owe to him for our peace and our restoration of life. It's a testimony. Brothers and sisters, we're called forward to retell our story of how we came to know Jesus, believe in Jesus, and continue to walk with Jesus. That's what he wants us to retell and to relive. I stumbled upon an awesome success as a youth pastor. I didn't intend to do this. It never really happens this way. It just worked out. I needed a month to fill of teaching. I couldn't think of a series, so I said, eh, let's just do senior testimonies. 
I'm going to have this, the graduating seniors that year, those who profess faith in Christ, get up and share their testimony to the rest of the youth group. It has become a tradition that has outlasted me. It is still done because it's, people anticipate having to do it. Now, people are both afraid and excited to do it all at the same time. Why? Because as they're sharing their story, they're coming to the grips of the realization that God was a part of my life. Otherwise, if I didn't have time to reflect on it and think about it, I would not be able to acknowledge how God has worked to transform me. And when I share that to the world, what am I proclaiming? That God has been working and active and loving me from the day I was born. And inevitably, when they would get up, I would kind of coach them beforehand, and they'd get up and tell their testimony. They'd be recounting and retelling their story in front of the youth group, and I would sit in back, and I'd take my prerogative as a youth pastor to ask questions as they're talking. Because oftentimes, students would bypass or, or not describe key moments of their life for fear of shame, for fear of uncertainty, from not wanting to be seen as... as as silly or, or dumb or something they did, but I would always stop and ask a question to afflict them, to bring it out, because those moments are the very moments where Christ is seen most clearly. Brothers and sisters, you and I have a testimony. Do you long to share it? Do you know your testimony? Could you retell it to somebody? See, the joy of listening to a testimony is the reminder that God is active in our world that I am not alone, that God is working alongside of me, alongside of my brothers and sisters. But now I've come to a place where I enjoy telling my testimony more than I'm really concerned with you hearing it because I relive the very thing God has done in my life. I need to be reminded of those things. And so inevitably, Christ's call forward faces opposition, though. We see it in the... In the first story we read, there was external opposition. But you know, statistically speaking, that the, in, the external opposition to the testimony, the proclamation of Jesus is really small. Most people will listen. Most people are excited to hear why you are the way you are or what you believe. It's only a small subset of the population that will plug their ears and go, nah, nah, nah. Very small. The real opposition, brothers and sisters, is always internal. It's our own uncertainty to answering the call to Christ to come forward. Because oftentimes, in order to be devoted to Christ to such an extent that he's asking here, we have to sacrifice something that we long for. To be a God unto ourselves. To figure it out on our own. Christ's love calls our presence to testify. Christ's love calls us out of anonymity for our faith to testify. But last, Christ's love calls us to persistent devotion. This is not a one-time event. This is a life calling that we're to devote ourselves to. And so in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, Jesus again is walking on a journey. Jesus is always walking somewhere. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus rebuffs him. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. We know this story is the rich young ruler. We, we might be pretty familiar with it. The odd thing about the rich young ruler is the one who is asking to inherit, inherit eternal life is pretty convinced that he's got it made. See, to be rich and to be pious in those days was to be the cream of, of the crop of society. He is on a strata that no one else is quite near. Men wanted to be him. Women wanted to be with him. And so he approaches Jesus thinking, hey, good teacher, 
And what is he actually saying? Hey, as one good man to another, is there anything in the fine print for eternal life that I don't know? Is there anything in the fine print that I have, may have missed? Jesus, help me out here. Which is why Jesus rebuffs his mild pleasantry of good teacher. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God. And so what does Jesus lean into? He says in verse 19, you, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defend, defraud, excuse me. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I've, I've kept all these uh, from my youth. <laughs> Jesus confronts his goodness the same way he's going to confront our goodness. That any notion of goodness coming from us is impossible. Goodness does not come from humanity. Jesus undermines the rich young ruler's assumption of his own goodness, presenting him with a need that he has, but he doesn't recognize. We have a need to step forward and answer the calling of Christ that we may not yet recognize. But there's something presenting us answering that, preventing us from answering that call. And so Jesus mentions five commandments, right? Is that the complete list? No, we're missing five other ones. Namely, the most important of that other five list, you shall have no other gods before me. Oh, but I've kept all these from my youth. Verse 21, looking at him, Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have to the poor and give all that you have to the poor and you will have a treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But he was dismayed by the demand and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus calls this man forward because he loves him. He's not trying to trick him. He's not trying to pressure him. He doesn't want him to experience pain and being uncomfortable mere for the sake of Jesus enjoys that. No. Jesus loves him. He has something extraordinary to offer him that he doesn't have. But the call has a cost. It's the cost of denying oneself the comforts we so quickly idolize. What comfort do you and I so quickly idolize that Christ says, abandon it so that you may have something extraordinary in return? That you can have me. The man is to give away his possessions and follow Jesus, but he can't do it because his goodness is attached to his possessions. In his society, right, to be rich and to be pious is to be seen as good. And so he equates his goodness with what he has. If I give away my possessions, I give away my goodness. I give away my status. I give away my certainty of eternal life. I can't do that. You shall have no other gods before me. His God is standing before him, asking him to follow, and he can't do it. And he walks away. Persistent devotion is required for us to answer the call. We don't share our faith once, we share it with our whole life. Our presence testifies to the goodness and unconditional love of God. What needs to be sacrificed, brothers and sisters? What needs to be placed at the altar? What, what comfort do we idolize that needs to be let go of so that we can answer the call more holy? So that we can experience a holiness that we cannot achieve but only receive And so our God is calling us forward to testify about his grace and forgiveness. 
And so we have to think through questions. How how do I apply this in such a capacity that it's tailored to who I am? The way I share the gospel is not the way you share the gospel. It's the same message, but it's a different method. The Lord has created you to testify in your presence to testify about things that I can't. But in your world, you can. So we ask the question, how is your presence in this world communicating the love, the loving transformation of Jesus' grace and forgiveness? What part of your presence communicates his love? How have you been transformed? What have you been saved from that communicates how good God is? Next, what, what in your testimony of faith need, is needed in your community, in both Christian and non-Christian circles? I love sharing my testimony. I now know the aspects of my testimony that people around me need. I grew up in church. I have a squeaky clean testimony for the most part. And most people sit there like, oh, that's not really a good testimony. It is. It's a phenomenal testimony. Because I don't start with just mine. I go back to my dad and his family. See, my faith comes out of his faith. And his transformation of his family where there is uh, abuse and, and addiction and all these stories of hurt and pain, I am the product of my dad's faith. The life I live, the squeaky clean Christian faith that I have is predicated on his. People need to know that if you come to Christ, there is transformation and it lasts from one generation to the next. At least it can. What about your testimony do people need to hear? I encourage you, think through it. How would I describe God to the people around me and communicate his love? Lastly, what's the cost for you to become a more devoted witness? What do you have to let go of to gain something greater? Remember at the beginning of this, I asked a question. If we were to ask our world, if you were to go to lunch or coffee with somebody, who would it be from history? And we asked the question, how many people would choose Jesus? You know what God's response to that question? That question's irrelevant. I have made you to be Christ to them. They don't need to ask that question. I've placed you in their life for that purpose. Brothers and sisters, let's answer the call to come forward. The spotlight may be warm, but man, it is full of God's grace and joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've convinced us of great things, that you are the author and perfecter of salvation, that you've transformed sinful lives and renewed them, reformed the way we think, the way we feel, the way we interact with our family and friends. Lord, help us to answer the call to come forward to testify to your unconditional love and power to transform us through grace and forgiveness. God, if you can give us opportunities today to meditate on these questions and to think through who it is and what it is needs to be shared, will you bring us conviction but one that is hopeful about what we can let go of to receive you more fully. In our last time of remaining in worship, may we declare to one another through our voices the great joy we have that you save, that you have saved us wretched sinners and transformed us into the righteous image of your son. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.